Hello, friends, and welcome. This is our uh, SBT Sunday teachings. Once again, we're between programs, so we usually just have some light Sunday uh, teachings between programs. My name, of course, is Venerable Tarpa. And before we begin, let's take a moment to appreciate our kind and handsome community gathered here today. Today, I feel fortunate to sit as a member of this kind community in the safety and security of like-minded friends, sharing this present moment with others dedicated to the cultivation of goodness. Today, I'm grateful for the direction and support that this community provides, a community worthy of my time and commitment, a community where my efforts have meaning, purpose, and are appreciated. Today, I'm thankful for this community of awakening, a place to gain the knowledge and skills to improve my life, a family, a home, and a sanctuary for all of us seeking refuge from the storm. And let's remember, as conscientious practitioners, <clears throat> we must recognize our responsibility to the world, to strive to live skillfully while helping others to do the same, to strive to live in balance and harmony with nature and others to strive to gain mastery over our minds and embody our true benevolent nature, to expand our hearts and minds, transcending our shared human limitations, to not intentionally harm sentient life or our planet, and to maturely accept and embrace the reality of our situation while striving to approve it. Again, welcome to our Sunday teachings. Today we'll be studying preparing for death in Buddhism. And so I think what we're going to do is I'm going to, well, let's, let's, let's do a little talk and then I'll post some things online for us. So um, as I mentioned previously, uh, one of our dear Sangha members, uh, Keith Clanton, uh, or we know him as Tenzin Powell, passed away this week. And it, it, was, uh, it was sad and it made a lot of us contemplate our own lives and death and so we had a lot of requests for uh, a teaching on preparing for the dying process um so um as a secular buddhist group our members uh have different views on the death process of course uh, we all know that in traditional buddhism they assert the idea of rebirth um however a lot of secular buddhist groups um, don't assert it, and, and many secular Buddhists don't, don't have a belief in rebirth, including uh, Stephen Batchelor and his Sangha. But what I find is that I think there's more secular Buddhists that, that share a belief in, uh, in rebirth, maybe a loose one. Um, so it's important to begin with that we respect the views of everyone, and and because of the fact simply none of us know the answer. None of us know if there's rebirth or not. Um, we, uh, myself, I like to remain agnostic and open about it. But with that said, I do share a, a belief. I, I currently, I do have a belief in rebirth. My belief is a loose one. I kind of look at it like out of, out of the many theories of what happens when we pass away from going to heaven and these others, I always think the idea of rebirth is a is a pretty fair one. So, um, I have a loose belief in it. But in uh, in SBT, we make a strong distinction between knowing and believing. We understand the difference. Uh, you know, believing is a is a personal thing. Believing means you don't have the facts. So then it's then it's up to you to to rather to whether or not to believe it. So uh, SBT, we leave belief to the individual. We don't share beliefs in our teachings. Um, we do share the Buddhist teachings though. And the Buddhist teachings uh, teach a lot about rebirth. So I was hoping to leave the debate about rebirth or not rebirth to another time and, uh, and really just kind of get into the heart of it all of what we can all do to uh, prepare ourselves um, and and uh, to have practices for for everybody, regardless of their different belief systems. Um, death is an interesting thing in Buddhism. It's much different 
than in other traditions. Um, first of all, Buddhism uh, apply, uh, implies that at the death process, at the moment of death, it allows us the greatest opportunity to reach awakening within our lifetimes. That through the death process, if you, if you know the process and you're prepared for it, you can achieve great levels of awakening within that and or having a great rebirth you can you can increase the uh the likelihood that you'll have a good rebirth and so for buddhists um our lives are lead are always leading up to that day every day of our lives we're practicing and preparing ourselves for that day in buddhism death is the big event of your lifetime and now that's kind of at odds with a lot of the ways we look at life. I think, you know, in a regular Western way, we look at life, the, maybe the peak of life is our, our wedding, or maybe even retirement at 60. But at that point, life just goes downhill from there. And we try to enjoy ourselves. But in a lot of ways, uh, in the West, people just wait to die. They just, they occupy themselves, they watch television, and they just wait for the reaper to come and take them away. I've mentioned before that I've worked in hospice across America extensively for, um, I think, more than 10 years. And um, I had a really good education of the dying process. This is something that's uh, a lot of Buddhists do. I recommend it highly. Hospice offers, these hospice is working with the actively dying People that have six months less, uh, left to live can be admitted in the hospice, and hospice, hospice helps people to die with dignity. But at most of the hospices across the world, you can volunteer, and that's what I did. I was a volunteer. The greatest thing is you, you go into the program, and they give you a great training for six weeks or so. They teach you everything you, you need to know about the death process. And um, so you get an enormous education. And that education itself frees you from your own death. Uh, you know, after going through hospice, I no longer have any fear of my own passing. And like all things, the, the, the antidote to fear is understanding, right? So when we understand the death process, we, we free ourselves to live really good conscious lives. Um, so in Buddhism, we're always, life is leading up to that last day, that, that the last day of our lives. And in the Tibetan tradition, they would take it to extremes where there's stories, stories of people that seem to know their time was coming and they throw a big party and they say, okay, April 27th, we're having a big party. I'm dying. And the stories go that they actually, you know, pass away, but they have these big parties and they celebrate their own death. So um, there's some advantages to this. Uh, again, for, for most people who get very close to death, maybe they have a year left in their lives or they're just, their physical body's really decayed. All there is to do is to uh, watch television and wait to die. In Buddhist traditions, it's not the case. Buddhist uh, elderly do all kinds of practice. They're constantly trying to accumulate more merit for the death process and for their next rebirth. So when you go to see elderly um, uh, Tibetans, they're all doing practices every day. They're doing, they're doing mantra recitations, they're doing prayers, they're reading from scriptures. And the closer they get to death, the, the harder they work because they want to get as much understanding and good karma as they can leading up to the, to the end. So um, it seems like a much healthier way to approach the death process than what I've seen myself in hospitals and, and hospice centers. And um, so uh, with that said, I want to share with everybody some of the practices that uh, I can recommend to everybody to, uh, to start practicing. Uh, Buddhist practitioners as young as 20 or 30 might start a daily contemplation on death. 
and um, and that's uh, quite normal. The Buddha himself, in um, in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, instructs everybody to meditate on the death process and to to meditate on um, on different stages of the death process. And the Buddha went as far as advising people to go to the cremation grounds, the cemeteries, and to meditate in front of a corpse, and to seek out corpses at different levels of decay, one that have been there a week, one that have been there two weeks, and to reflect on the dying process and to reflect on their own bodies and realize that your body as well is aging and you're going to be a corpse just like that. Some traditions took it even further where they would do macabre practices in the cremation grounds, like sitting on corpses and meditating or wearing their robes were made out of the cloth of corpses, you know, the cloth that they were buried in, things like that. Um, in Tibetan Buddhism and Tantra, oftentimes their musical instruments are made out of human bone. The drums are made from skull caps. The 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 conglings or little little trumpets are made from thigh bones of human beings, and so um, and with the whole idea of of, of embracing the idea of death, um, I think we all know uh, people that are just uh, really afraid of the topic itself. When I worked with hospice, I would try to talk about my experiences with friends. And they would put their fingers in their ears and say, don't say that word. Don't say the word death. Like by, by talking about it, it's going to bring it on quicker to everybody. And I can assure you that I did this 30 years ago. I'm still alive myself after saying the word many times. So a lot of us are really afraid of the dying process. And I've had... Um, friends talk to me about it. I have friends who have a, a deep fear of the dying process, and, um, and it makes sense. It's the unknown, but uh, the antidote is understanding, right? Um, I do believe that Buddhism is unique in its presentation of the dying process. They have an old saying that Buddhists die as professionals, and meaning that we really educate ourselves. We really understand the dying process. And um, in a lot of Buddhist countries, like through South, South uh, Asia, what's interesting is that most Buddhist cultures will have kind of split religions. Though they're Buddhist, most of the time for their everyday religious needs, they're practicing some kind of shamanistic uh, religions, oftentimes coming from Hinduism. So Sri Lanka was a great example. They all call themselves Buddhists, but every day they're going to a temple for a deity, a local deity, and they wear amulets around their necks, and, and they, they do exorcisms and believe in possession of people. Very not Buddhist things, right? Um, but what was funny was, is that uh, these shamanistic practices were for everyday things. Buddhism was for the dying process, right? And I remember some funny quote once. It was, go to, the, go to a Christian when you're born, and you go to maybe Hindus when you're living, and then you go to the Buddhists when you're passing away. So again, they say, Buddhists die as professionals. And um, the Buddha claimed that death was his greatest teacher. And I think it, there's just a, a great truth to it that when you, when you really are, are confronted with death, it gives you great clarity into life. I think my spiritual path began uh, shortly after the passing of my father when I was in my 20s. And I wasn't in crisis. My father had a, uh, had a peaceful, good death. Uh, but I think the death process awakens us to what is the possibilities. And we start to contemplate our own existence and, and things like that. So um, anyways, that's why Buddhism digs into it so strongly. And so again, I'm not going to really get into the whole rebirth or no rebirth thing, 
the texts that I recommended that everybody read, um, those are jam-packed with all the arguments pro and con of what it, what it all is. But today, I think we just stick strictly to practice and to answering some good questions. I think that that's all I needed to share there. Let's, um, let's start with this. Okay, I put up on the screen, this is from the text Preparing for Death that I recommended to everybody. Um, so uh, above this has a, a much more detailed account of what I kind of just shared with everybody. But uh, I'd like to just go through the practice and uh, these are some ideas for all of us uh, in our daily lives, whether you're passing away now or, uh, or you're just preparing for it, but we should all be preparing for it. The Dalai Lama does uh, practices for death every day. He has been since he was like 30 years old. He does them every morning. So how to live and die well. So there's, there's six points here. Uh, first of all, to educate ourselves about the death process is the most important. To cultivate an acceptance of death, which comes from the education. To live a virtuous and wholesome life. Uh, to develop a daily practice of meditating on the death process uh, and contemplate and visualize a preferred rebirth. For those who believe in rebirth, um, visualizing uh, your next rebirth is a, is a great practice, especially during the, the actual death process. And number six, study, contemplate, and meditate on the Buddha's teachings, which prepares us for uh, our passing. Um, next, I have the five remembrances. I did a short edit on this as I was preparing for my teaching, and I realized that in this paper there were a few things that were a little outdated. I posted a new text for this uh, preparing for death on the website about an hour ago. So some of you might have an older copy. I replaced something else with this because it's much more uh, beneficial. So if you um, if you are gonna if you're gonna go ahead and practice these, please download the latest copy. They're free on the website sbtonline.org. So the five remembrances are the daily contemplation and uh, it's an affirmation that uh, you can do every morning in your morning prayers. Uh, number one, I am the nature to grow old. I cannot escape old age. Two. I am the nature. I I am of the nature to get sick. I cannot escape sickness. Number three, I am of the nature to die. I cannot escape death. Number four, all that is dear to me and everyone I love are all of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. And number five, I inherit the results of my actions by body, speech, and mind. My actions are my continuation, which would be karma. So these, the five remembrances uh, are related to um, um, appear uh, the acceptance of death, number two, right? So this is a great affirmation to say every day if you uh, are taking on the practice. Traditionally, they have this nine-point meditation on dying. And this is another one that we can contemplate each day. Um, so there's three categories, and then they list the nine points within those. That death is certain. No being has ever escaped death. One is constantly getting closer to death. There is a limited time of, in life to practice and awaken. Number two, the time of death is uncertain. The lifespan of humans begin, beings is not fixed. More conditions endanger life than support it. One's body is extremely fragile. Number three, at the time of death, our Dharma practice is the only thing we can rely upon. And when we, uh, so uh, wealth can't help, friends and relatives can't help, one's body can't help. So when they talk about the, our Dharma practice, this also pertains to our mental, emotional uh, 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 results, right? The, uh, oh, what the, what's the word I'm trying to use? Uh, this has to do with your karma and 
uh, your good karma, your merit that you've uh, that you've gained, all of these things are what we rely upon. That you've prepared yourself well for the death process, and that uh, you're, you'll be able to go through it well. Okay, uh, and then we have the practice uh, practice of giving and taking. I'll talk about it in a little bit. So, uh, for others, we have this eight dissolutions. Uh, the stages of the death process. Now, this isn't a secular uh, practice for se, uh, but um, this comes from the tantric teachings. I always uh, was impressed by this, and so I added it. I can't say whether it's accurate or not, but after living, uh, working with hospice, I found that this closely mirrored the understanding that hospice had in the uh, death process. And what this is, is this shows how stage by stage, the body transcends these various levels, getting deeper and deeper into the death process. I'm not gonna go into detail. Uh, You can read the text. I believe it's really clear. If you have questions about it, you can ask me. This is the traditional uh, prayer or practice for death that Tibetans would do. This is the practice that the Dalai Lama does every single day. This is a practice that I used to do every day. I haven't been doing it, but um, I really should get back to it as well. And in a sense, what you're doing is you you visualize and mimic the process of dying stage by stage. And the idea is you get so good at it that you actually recreate the death process. And by doing it over and over and over again, you're rehearsing your own death. Now, the idea is when death comes, you're so prepared, you just go through the steps and it leads you right into awakening or enlightenment. Um, The interesting thing is that most of the stages happen after what the West would consider the moment of death, that I believe only the first three, um, after the first three, the the Western uh, world would say the person's dead. But Buddhism asserts, Tibetan Buddhism asserts that that uh, though the, there's no signs there of life, that the, uh, the you still are indeed alive, and there's these different uh, seven more layers that you go through before. Um, the death process. I'm sorry, my math is terrible. That would have been more like five more levels. So you can read that for yourselves. Um, Then we have a little piece here on what to do when death arrives. So in the death process itself, um, cultivating a peaceful mind is said to be the most advantageous of practices, that your mental state at the moment of death. So if you don't believe in rebirth, your mental state is gonna give you peace through the death process. If you believe in rebirth, your mental state is is going to have the most to do with what kind of a rebirth you're gonna have. But in either cases, uh, generating a peaceful accepting mind is the most important thing you can do in the death process. And it's not easy, right? Because at that moment, when you really realize you're dying, you know, strong fear and anxiety can set in, and other things like the the fear of uh, the loss of your loved ones, you're not gonna see them anymore. Great attachment and clinging to this life create great trouble for the death process. And they, they keep you hanging on to this life. And then, you know, life is in a sense, you know, pulled from you against your will. So that could be very um, emotional. So, and and again, it says here, pacify negative emotions, and that's what we're talking about here. Fear, attachment, negative emotions. Accepting your death, to let go, to be peaceful, don't fight it, accept that it's simply your time to go. Um, We have take comfort in the three jewels, have confidence in the power of the three jewels, have confidence that your practice has prepared you, that you have the merit uh, and, um, and good mental and emotional qualities to 
go through this and to succeed at this the best in any way you can. Have confidence in your practice. See the time of death as the time for serious practice. This is something that Keith did, and uh, and I was so happy. I, I couldn't have recommended this any stronger. Um, most people when they die, one of the greatest travesties is that during the death process, it's so easy for our minds to collapse into themselves and to make it the strongest egoic experience of your entire life. Me, I am dying. I mean, there's it's all about that. There's just no thoughts of any other kind. And, and what happens is you, you magnify all of the problems. You magnify and exaggerate the suffering, the pain, the loss, everything. So when, um, when you realize that it's a time for serious practice and you don't let emotional things get in the way, um, this is the right way to practice. In Tibet, they would often, um, a few days before the, 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 they pass, they would say goodbye to loved ones ahead of time. So loved ones weren't there during the, their death process because that could serve as a great distraction to their practice, to have those weeping relatives. It would create a great sense of attachment to this life, which they do not want. They want to focus completely on their next life. So the time of death is for serious practice. We're not waiting around to die. Focus on having a magnificent death. That's a weird one, huh? <laughs> for, for teachers, uh, teachers often want to use this time to show their students how to die well. And there's great stories of, of masters making a big deal about their passing and making it a great time to teach and to show others how to die well and to die with dignity and... So, uh, but it's kind of a funny thing to think about having a magnificent death, kind of like you're planning a big wedding. You, you plan your big, uh, your big end. Um, focus on your next life if you believe in rebirth. Here we want to visualize what kind of environment that we want to be reborn, what kind of parents we want, things like that. If you're a person that has a, a belief in rebirth, uh, contemplate all of your virtuous actions. So oftentimes in, during the death process, people will think about all the things they did wrong and they're worried about going to hell and all of it coming back to them. You, so the antidote is to do the opposite, to focus on all the wonderful things you've done, all the people you've loved. You focus on your practice, you focus on the vows that you've upheld, and that's a great antidote to negativity. Uh, the next one is to let go of regret. All of these things in the past that you did, you did them out of ignorance. You did them all when you were not as wise as you are now. You want to give yourself a break. Let, let, let the past be the past and uh, try to let go of all those regrets. And, and in these passages, they go into great detail. You can read this text on your own. Uh, cultivate the altruistic intention of bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is the altruistic mind of awakening that to awaken for the benefit of all beings. So again, it, during the death process, when we start to collapse in on ourselves, poor me, look what I'm going through, look at what I'm going to lose. And I'm not making fun of anyone. You could just imagine with the fear of death and the unknown, how you just cling to yourself, don't you? I mean, it's a, it's a, a completely normal thing to do. But for the bodhisattva and those who are cultivating bodhicitta, um, when we think about others and their situations, it really helps to break that. And one of the ways we can do that is through the practice of Tonglen, which is the practice of giving and taking. In the practice of giving and taking, we, we develop this attitude that since I'm dying anyways, I might as well take on, or wouldn't it be nice if I could take on the suffering 
of all of the people in the world that are also dying. Instead of all of us dying, I have decided I'll take on all their suffering so they can die in peace. And you breathe in their suffering. Oftentimes, though, you'll imagine breathing in like, like black smoke. And then you purify it in your heart. And then you breathe out your goodness, your compassion to all of those so they don't have to suffer. Now, whether this is real or not is, is besides the point. It's a contemplation and exercise. Many people believe it, it really if it actually uh, physically works. But what it does do is, again, it stops the ego from collapsing in on itself and, and making this whole thing just about, about you, which strengthens the, uh, the sense of identity and strengthens the idea of false self. And moves us away from right view, right? Okay. Um, during the actual death process, uh, we want to recognize the eight stages of dissolution as they appear. If you uh, believe in this practice and if you'd like to do this practice. Um, meditation, if you can and when you can. And if you have problems meditating, practice mindfulness. Trying to stay mindful, conscious, aware, through the experience, we wanna we wanna have a, a conscious passing, um, and then with medication, this can be a problem. Uh, oftentimes, Buddhists will take as little medication as they can. So, and medication, I mean opioids and uh, uh, things do painkillers, uh, because they want to keep a clear mind as best they can. Uh, my own thought is is that. I believe that uh, it's okay to take the uh, painkillers, and I would, because I think at the, at the, when you get deeper and deeper through the dying process, there's a point where the mind becomes completely clear, so, so it's said, where all the physical attributes of, of, uh, related to the mind ha are already in the passing process, and including effects of opioids or things like that, but I believe that there's a clarity to the mind that happens, and in, in that state, you can continue through the eight dissolutions with a completely clear mind. So I think that those opiates and uh, pain-killing meditations only work up to a point. But with that said, I would monitor my own and be careful to not to get too uh, loopy and, and, and still be able to do my practice if I could. If you're, if you're in pain, it's perfectly fine to, uh, to take all the needed medication. Um, Tata? Uh, yes, please. Marcus has a, a question about the eight stages of death. Um, please. And he said, the eight stages of death or eight stages of dissolutions, has this been experienced by meditators? Or how has this been known? I'm just afraid that everything just goes black and that's it. Sure. The idea is that practitioners have have uh, have done uh, explored death, actively dying, and in situations where, just like today, you have people that that uh, pass away and are brought back again. So for thousands of years, these Tibetans have been exploring this process of death, and the whatever evidence that they could find through their own experience and the experience of others, they put together and they created this eight dissolutions. And again, it's interesting how at least a first handful of them, they correspond uh, almost the same as what we learned in hospice. So they seem to be on to something. And then the other thought is, is that meditators that practice it strongly, like His Holiness the Dalai Lama, they actually claim that they've gone through the process, or at least they believe they have. That, that through this, the, they really experience what seemed to them like the real death process. And as far as more evidence goes, I'm afraid I can't add any more. You know, it's all speculation. Uh, I, I'm afraid this comes into the realm of belief. Uh, it is something that I practice. And then you could also say to yourself, you know, whether or not it's, it's, it's truly real, does that, does that affect me much? You know, does, maybe it's still helpful in some way, you know, hinging your bet, as they would say. 
I hope that helps. I was I was wasn't sure whether to include this in in uh, SPT's curriculum or not because one of one thing is that I don't teach tantra, and the other one is that it is based strongly on belief, you know. So, but I think I uh, I think I give all the caveats at the beginning that share that. So if you're not interested in this, people can just skip it. Is that helpful? Ah, oh, okay. So getting back to this, we have a couple practices here that are from our Skillful Living program, which we're starting next week. So some of you might not know these, but these are practices that are near and dear in our hearts for, for uh, SBT members. The practice of shining is something that we can do throughout the whole death process. And the best way to shine is through the practice of the four gifts. Um, three breath meditation you can do anytime you want to throughout the death process. You can use mantras with it, like like um, present, aware, content, you know things like that. And we have a we have a few different chants down here. Um, your affirmations are a great thing to continue all the way up to the day of your passing. Uh, your affirmations, your commitments, and pledges. I recommend those should be. Those should be upheld all the way to the very end. And if you can't say them, uh, you can listen to them on audio. For Keith, we prepared many audio files that are can be downloaded from our uh, download library at sptonline.org. And uh, our daily affirmation and commitments are also on audio. So there's no reason why you can't continue your practice, at least to to have a caregiver play them for you when you listen to them. It's tradition that um, monks would chant the scriptures to dying people. And it's kind of funny because dying people would, would probably not understand any of the words that they were being, they were being chanted, but um, that's a popular thing. And so many people that pass away, they'll have uh, audio files of, uh, of sutras and have that play. And then we have a couple. We have a couple mantras here that can be chanted to or listened to, um, and so any questions up to there? There's nothing else in the chat. Yeah, I was afraid I was moving too quickly. Are you sure? I have a. Oh, okay, that's fine. Okay, so let's move on to this for those. Uh, caring for dying practitioners, and we have some here now that are doing this. Uh, reading Buddhist texts to the dying, uh, display visual representations of the Dharma, whether uh, all the caregivers are wearing SBT t-shirts and hats, or you have a picture of the Buddha or a statue, whatever the dying person would find helpful and, and heartwarming. Um, and then there's the idea of what happens after death has occurred. So in Tantric Buddhism, one of the strangest things is that uh, Tantric practitioners believe that we are, are still alive for quite a long time after Western medicine would say we were dead. And we're often talking days or weeks. And so um, this is something that's problematic uh, in hospitals, because for Tibetans, the idea is that you don't touch a dead body for many for many days or weeks, uh, because the uh, if it's a practitioner, they could still be practicing, and they're still they're still in the the eight dissolutions, and so um, in the West, it's not possible. They have guidelines. Bodies have to be. Um, uh, dealt with after passing. There's only so many days and they refrigerate them and embalming and all that. Um, so um, that's an interesting thing for Western practitioners, you know, to where that they can pass away and not be bothered. I know a lot of practitioners will would choose to, uh, to die in places like India where they can get around these things. Um, but again, a lot of this is belief, and it's up to you whether you believe in them or not. Um, what what people do for the dying after they've passed is they, um, the Tibetans have a strong belief in what's called the in-between stage, the bardo. 
This is mentioned in sutras, but just vaguely, whereas the Tibetans, their uh, original religion, the Bun religion, uh, had a really strong belief in this, uh, this middle life between rebirths. And, uh, and so it seemed to have flavored uh, Tibetan Buddhism and Tantra, and they have a very uh, detailed account of the in-between stages, especially the Nyingma school, who has a text. Now, this text was, was barely known. Uh, only the Nyingma ever practiced it. But what happened in the 60s is the hippies got a hold of it, and they loved it, and they, it was macabre and strange. And it's called the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And Westerners all think that, oh, this is the book to read. And I was a Ning I started with the Nyingma school, so I've had many teachings on the text itself. But only later did I find out the history of the text. And it was actually like, like the Grateful Dead and Timothy Leary. They got their hands on the, on the text, and they thought it was a tripping guide. They would do acid, and they would they would go through these levels. And, and what it is, it's a macabre tale of that when you die, these peaceful and wrathful deities come to you in visions. And, but uh, then I learned uh, when I started studying different forms of, of Buddhism, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, that uh, the other schools don't, don't have anything like that. The Geluk have don't have a single text referring to anything even similar to it. And but this whole bardo stage, that's a whole topic in its own right, where, you know, you leave this body and then you have like an astral body and you uh, and you you're there for a certain amount of time. And that gets to the point I was trying to make originally that after you die, it's said that you're in the bardo from the in-between st stages, but for uh, seven to 49 days. Quite accurate, isn't that quite amazing? And so every seven days, the, the uh, family will do prayers and recitations for the dying. They'll do smoke offerings, things like that, every seven days, up to 49 days. So that's the, that's the death, that's the mourning process, according to Buddhism. Um, myself, I don't have, a, I don't share a belief in, in those kind of things. So uh, I wouldn't necessarily do that. But yeah, the whole Bardo thing is quite interesting. And how uh, when you're ready for rebirth, you see your mother and father and uh, in while they're making love. And you see them, if you're attracted to the mother, you will be born as a male. If you're attracted to the father, you'll be born as a female. And, um, and you enter at conception and... That's how you're. That's how you're reborn. So it's quite. They they have a lot of literature on it. I think it's a, it's all a little bit too uh, mystical for myself, being a proud agnostic and secular Buddhist. And uh, I think that that's all I wanted to share today. I'm not sure if. Oh no, no, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I had a. Uh, oh, I had a. Um, I wanted to share a a meme. But I put it in the text. This is, again, the five remembrances. I'll post this on our social media for everybody to have. It's not part of our, uh, prayer, our daily prayers, but you can add it to your daily prayers if you'd like. And I'll post that. So what do you guys think? That's a lot to, that's a lot to take in. Bardot. I never heard of Bardot. It's Bardot. Bardot. Yeah. Very nice. Anyways, yes, Marcus. Yes, I feel very hopeful <laughs> that um, there is a practice uh, that you can follow. I have read a lot about near-death experiences uh, from several authors in uh, from the West, and they they all tell the same the same story with a tunnel and light and so on. And uh, I can see that light is, um, is apparent here as well. So I just feel uh, hopeful and I got very happy with this teaching. Thank you very much. 
You're welcome. Yeah, that's a, a hugely popular topic these days, these near-death experiences. And more and more doctors are coming forth sharing their experiences. I'm skeptical just because it's healthy to be, but it's a lovely thought. The greatest thing about having practice and, and realizing that the death process is a time for serious practice is that we don't die as victims. Most people die as victims. Here I go, I hope it's not gonna hurt. Whatever the hospital can do, whatever death is doing, sooner or later I'm gonna die. It's, everything is completely out of your control. And this sets up people for a very, very poor mental state. It, people are afraid. People feel there's, there's nothing they can do. They feel powerless. Not a good state of mind to go through the death process. So having a practice and feeling like you're prepared for it, you know, whether or not rebirth exists, whether or not these practices lead to something after the death process, I guarantee they're beneficial right up to the to death. I've seen it hundreds of times. Well, I used to practice these macabre, some of these macabre practices when I when I was a tantric practitioner. I did a practice called Chud, where we visualize a lot of this macabre kind of things. We had we had musical instruments of bone. I had a skull bone drum, and I had a human thigh bone trumpet. And I thought I was really cool. I had all the gadgets and all the stuff on the walls. I'm a tantrika, and um, um, and we used to we used to do things like meditate at cemeteries. Uh, practitioners would volunteer their or offer their bodies for us to meditate with. So we would, well, you know, have a have a coffin or a box. Uh, opened and we could meditate and do our practices with the body before, you know, for a few days before it, they, they uh, went to the cemetery. And uh, so I'm uh, really familiar with this whole subject experientially in a very deep level, including my travels. I was in Tibet, I witnessed sky burials, which is in Tibet, they, uh, they chop up the body and they feed it to vultures. Uh, mostly because Tibet doesn't have trees. Most of Tibet doesn't have trees, so you can't cremate. The ground's too frozen to bury anyone. So the only options they have is to feed it to the vultures or feed it to the fish. Oftentimes they chop up the body in little pieces and, and put it into the river. And there's this guy, and that's his job, is chopping up bodies. And he's got a special knife and he does those. And, and then monks are there to practice and meditate and things like that. And I tell you, witnessing that, that gives you a different insight into the death process. When you see a, a you know, what looks like a healthy corpse, I mean, it's not decayed, and they just start chopping it up in front of you. And these birds all gather and they start feeding all the birds. Wow, that's something to, to witness. Sounds terrifying. Yeah. Wait, there's, there's monks with big crooks, big sticks to keep the birds away because, you know, they're eating people there. You know, I'm a person just as well, so you got to protect yourself from, from these mad vultures. Yeah. Yeah, so I've had a lot of experience in this whole thing from 10 years of hospice to all my Buddhist studies, meditating in cemeteries and in caves and watching those vultures eat people, and it's quite something. I've witnessed uh, many cremations in the monastery. One of my great tantric teachers passed away. They had an elaborate uh, ceremony, and I, I was there to witness it, and I was there uh, to help prepare the body and, um, and put it in the, in the cremation thing. And then after the cremation is over, uh, and cooled, they go through the relics of the body and they look for special shaped little pearl objects from the body. They look at the skull and see if there's any any auspicious symbols inside the skull, you know, things like that. <laughs> was, I wasn't sure if I wanted to share this with you. Maybe I maybe I share it with you anyways. So there's this um, practice called Tukten, and 
It's what we're talking about, that after the death process, the body isn't, uh, isn't completely dead. So I was in the monastery, and uh, story tells that one of, the, one of the masters had passed away, and they're doing, uh, they're doing uh, rites for the body. The body is in a, a small meditation uh, hut, two rooms, uh, in the heat of India. It's hot. The monks are outside the building playing instruments, and, and the gentleman's, uh, the past master is there. And the idea is, is that they, they watch the body. And what happens is, and now I, whether we believe in this or not, I can only tell you my firsthand knowledge, and you know how skeptical I am of things. Anyways, the body doesn't decay. And, you know, I worked with hospice. I know that just a day or two after the death process, you know, an odor starts. Maybe some of you have had the experience of a, a dog that dies in the field or on your house. You smell it everywhere. I mean, it's a horrendous smell. Well, this master isn't decaying. There's no smell. And they allowed me to, to come back and see the body whenever I wanted. I went daily. And I, they'd let me touch the body, and I could tell there's no rigor mortis. The body's, the body's still soft to the touch. There's no smell. The, the, uh, the stomach's bloated. The face is blackened. But that's all. And I just keep going day after day after day. The first one I witnessed was 14 days, and, and still there was no smell. And in fact, towards the end, it almost started to smell good in the room it was very strange and then the story goes that at some point a blood a little blood will come from the nostril or some semen will come from the tip of the penis and they know that the process is over and then they cremate the body so that's something to see i've witnessed it uh, personally uh, twice and and i was in the monastery for the third one but i wasn't going each day to see it the second one was lama nima and uh, that was 21 days. And so I have no explanation for it. And I don't know what's happening. I don't know if the Tibetans are right that they're practicing and they're actually in an enlightened state. But I thought I'd share that with you. Very unsecular of me. <laughs> but quite fascinating. huh? And I, I still have pictures of my phone of Lama Nima laying there. So just something to to think about. And as an agnostic, you know, I'm open to the mystery of the universe. There's so much more going on than we know about. I just, there's not any evidence, so we can't talk about it. But in my daily life, you know, there's a fair amount of uh, mystical kind of coincidences that happen that really um, make you in awe of the universe and how things work. So I'm open to the I'm open to the mystical, I'm open to the mystery, but not to the magical, mystical, yeah. Would anybody like to share? I feel like I'm the only one talking. <laughs> Taparun says he's done many autopsies and understands the physiology of death, but he's still curious about the mind in all of this. And, and I was going to state that um, there is an, uh, an increasing body of evidence that I'm aware of that people who are in the dying process, if they have a positive mind state, they are generally uh, do better on the well-being scale. They, they generally have a better well-being and a better uh, and less pain. And there's also evidence that people with a positive mind state can actually live longer with the same illness as somebody that uh, has a has a negative kind of um, fearful um, yeah. state. Yeah, I didn't need ev evidence for those. I knew those myself. Yeah, being positive is everything in life. Yeah. Oh, Ron, that's fascinating. Yeah. Pretty cool. We could have been meditating during those autopsies with my drum and my bugle. <laughs> Scaring the heck out of the doctors, yeah? Is anybody afraid well, of that? you kind of do, in a way, because yeah. you're, you're, 
at least in hindsight, you know, I, I wasn't practicing meditation back then, but it's to do a good one, you're very focused and you're in the present moment because you're making observations of what you're doing. Um, a lot of concentration if you're doing it right. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I, I wish I would have been meditating at that time. I guess I can do it yeah. in my head now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is there anything to prepare pets for during the death process? I'm not sure we can do much for, for pets. You know, the, you know, cognition wise, you know, there's not much we can do to change their minds. So a lot of people like to do prayers and things. I think there's things you could do for yourself. If you believe in prayer, you can pray. You know, we're a, we're a secular group, but we're also an agnostic group. And to be honest, myself, I, I'm, I'm agnostic about prayer. I don't have proof one way or another whether prayer works or not. I think sometimes when, when I'm um, in a desperate situation, it feels good to pray. And maybe the, the human mind does have an influence on others. So I'm, I'm open-minded to the idea of prayer. Just not praying to a deity. I wouldn't pray to a deity. Donna? Hi. I'm wondering about sudden death, uh, an accident, a quick accident. What does Buddhism think about that kind of situation if one hasn't or has prepared? If you've prepared well, you know, maybe you can catch the stages, but those are those are tough situations. Uh, Tibetans would just start with their mantras right away. I remember I was in a, a snowstorm with uh, a monk and the car started sliding and he thought it was the end of his life and he went right into his mantras man clutching his mala <laughs> just over and over again so um yeah you would just say oh my god <laughs> oh my god oh my god oh my god oh my god yeah 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 <laughs> holy holy no yeah so uh you know if you're uh if you're familiar with these practices you might be able to just pull them right out and start working with them. If it's a very quick death, there's nothing you can do about it. So, well, you know, like life. Uh, Ron, did you have your hand up before? Um, yeah, what I was going to say is I, I used to think, I think of a funny story uh, many years ago at dinner, I, we were talking about something and I said, uh, you know, what if um, when you die, your last thought is your eternity? And, and I, I was like, I have contemplated this for a long time. And, and I said, hasn't everybody here thought about that? And surprisingly, no. And um, somebody said, well, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> um, and, you know, I just assumed deductively that we just assume the same state we we're in before we were born and that it's no big deal. You know, you just go back to nothingness. But since I started meditating, now the question is, in those last moments where your mind is actually still there at, you know, this dissolution, what does that actually mean that your last thought may be your eternity? What, what does that actually mean? I well said. I don't either, Ron. <laughs> That's what makes these great questions. The unknown ones are. And, you know, the Buddha wouldn't answer these questions. They talk about the Buddha's golden silence. The Buddha wouldn't yeah, answer many questions, the but but the traditions be... the traditions end up trying to answer them themselves. I think we're all going to be surprised, but but pleasantly surprised. Maybe in some way, maybe. Maybe. You can always hope, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can. Brian and Sharon. Yeah, it's just very interesting. Uh, you know, the discussion tonight on preparation. I think that's something for me, um, which I probably not had given enough thought about. Um, I mean, I, I was quite lucky to have my grandparents um, in my life, you know, until I was nearly 50. But when they had passed away, we had a couple of pets that passed away, um, a couple of friends, you know, the New Year were work colleagues that passed away. And I'm not, I hadn't been a religious person. They were uh, religious, some of them were religious um, ceremonies in terms of 
um, you know, Christian. But the only thing I could think was um, that I hope they go off to a better place. I hope they're going off to a better life. You know, that they yeah. you know, have a positive memory um, you know, about them. And then still feeling a bit empty and actually not really knowing, you know, really not knowing because I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe, you know, I'm, I'm agnostic, you know, really to that. And then I've got to the point where for me, I don't think it matters. You know, I think it's about how 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 I live, how, and it's, it's good that tonight listening to what we're talking about and, and what you're saying, that's about actually, you know, the, the life living and preparing, you know, for the death. I think what after, yeah. after I die, I'm dead. You know, my mind's dead. Yeah, and I feel the same way you do. Um, I don't know what happens after we die. I know what Buddhism says about it. I know all the theories of it, but I don't know. But I, but I do have a, I, I do have a, a, a belief in rebirth, meaning that I, that's the one I pick out of all the various theories. That one sounds pretty good, you know. Uh, and uh, so I feel the same way you do. And, you know, uh, I haven't been practicing these death meditations uh, for a while. But the point is that I practiced them for, for so long in the past that I feel now prepared. So if I, if I did get hit by a car and I was, I was dying, that I already am prepared enough to do that, right? So uh, that's one way to look at it, that you could just do these practices for a while and really feel like you have the practice down. So then you're prepared. So then whatever happens, you know, you're set. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting when people talk about close to death and operations or things like that. They say, some say they see the light, some say they just see blackness. You know, and, yeah. and you don't, you know, really sort of know. Some say there's just the, the synapses of the brain and the chemical reactions. And, you know, we don't really sort of know, but I think, I think some people will have that sense of comfort. You know that the yeah 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 and and we don't know and and even these uh, experiences that people have we don't we don't know the origin of the experiences. Uh, in the in the eight dissolutions, there is a, a, a one aspect of clear light where you do have that experience of uh, of white. Maybe maybe that's the tunnel. Thank you, Brian. It's a mystery. Well, we woke up Rick, everybody. <laughs> Sorry, Rick. <laughs> You're muted. We can't hear you. Oh, that's funny. Um, anyways, uh, I, I, I read this study where they people kept saying in the operating room when they die, they'd say they're up by the lights and they could see the surgeons operating and, and heard what they said and everything. So these um these scientific investigators decided to put something on top of the light like a blue dot or something like that and nobody ever told them that they saw a blue dot up there so um kind I read of that too ah okay and that aspect of it isn't part of the tibetan or the buddhist idea in the in eight dissolutions is no experience of drifting up and seeing everybody so there, there is quite a difference between the modern takes on near-death experience and the Tibetan one. They're not the same. Yeah. And on that note, we're getting a little bit long, so why don't we wrap up today's... Does anybody have any pressing comments they want to share that must be shared? How are you feeling about all this, David? <laughs> You're muted. I love the phrase, don't die as victims. Um, yeah, me that's too. My take, that's my main single takeaway from uh, that. that that's a, I love that. I, I love that. Um, die as a professional. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the other one I enjoyed, but I don't know if I'm going to live to it, is focus on having a magnificent death. It's <laughs> really amusing as well. So, um, but no, the, these are good, good, good principles. I don't know about doing any of the exercises, but uh, you know, I'm really certainly going to hold on to those perspectives. Yeah, and it's each, it's up to each one of us to prepare in whatever way we want what we wanted. 
I wanted to give everybody the tools, whatever your belief in, and however you want to prepare. Um, on our website, in these texts, we have all the tools you need for from the Buddhist perspective. Also, they're, uh, they're all in audio files, too, so you can listen to them as well. Oh, thanks, everybody. Why don't we end today's medit- uh, teaching with our altruistic affirmation? May all be healthy. May all be prosperous. May all be well. May all be present, free of past regret and future worry. <clears throat> may all abide in constant appreciation, which is a source of great joy and contentment. May all realize their true nature and the true nature of reality, which is awakening. Bye, everybody. Thanks for joining Bye, thank me. You. See you thank tomorrow you. for meditation. Bye. 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 You're welcome. <laughs>